Petersfield's Shine Radio. You're listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books, where each month I pick up a pearl from the past. This month, with lockdown only hours away from recording this edition, I bring a little happiness. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, with some ideas for Christmas books. Um, We're here in the shop today, chatting about his latest book with Neil Edworthy. So keep listening to find out what Neil and I have in common with hens. Before all that... Susie, what are you reading at the moment? Well, thanks to you, I'm reading your recommendation to me, Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell, which is surprisingly wonderful. I thought it would be, I don't know if you've read it, Neil, but it's immense. I mean, this is a tome that nearly broke my arm to pick up. It's probably two and a half kilograms, but it's two and a half kilos of pure genius. It starts in about 1967, I reckon, and I think that's right, about um, some disparate people who form a rock group. And that's totally my era. I mean, I'm not so old that I was the same age as them then. But I do remember turning around in 1968 to my friend Gillian Robson and saying, we are so lucky to be alive now. And I think particularly with the US election and everything at the moment, we've completely lost that gloss. But I loved it. It's so witty and wonderful and well-written. Everything that for me, Cloud Atlas, was not Okay, interesting you say that. I think I think he's a fabulous writer, and I'm I'm a big fan, and I've read read most of his books. Um, and what he does, it's quite interesting, is that he brings characters from previous books and just lobs them in. Um, sometimes just in a very tangential way, very minor characters, sometimes major characters, and they've been minor characters in previous books. I really like that. And mm. and so you, as a as a lover of Dave Mitchell, which I am, you, you suddenly pick up on another voice that's come in, and you remember, oh gosh. That has resonances back to this book. The connecting and, world. Yep, and it, it all yeah. comes together. It's not you don't have to have read the books, or other books beforehand to make sense. But when you do, when you realise you've got a connection, it's fantastic. I was talking to my daughter about this, and she said that there is a website you can go to which actually has a spreadsheet of all the different characters and how they link up, which who appears really? in which books. No, I can't so, be doing that. Uh, no, I know, if, if you're no. a real fan, you're real, that's where you go. But <laughs> but I think basically this book is a. Uh, is a cracking read, and it, yeah. it, it, what it does is it, it brings you know uh, to those of us that weren't there or don't remember the sixties. Um, it brings it right. It makes it right. Well, given the demographic of Petersfield, I think most people here would really enjoy it. But also, you talked about lobbying in. One of the things I love is you think you know, you think you you've got it sus now. They're going to get success, and they're going to America. Blah blah blah, and suddenly it becomes. Very strange. I was going to say psychedelic, but that sounds like it is because of the drugs, and it totally isn't. It just takes a complete right turn, or even a left turn, um, and goes off into this, well, almost, I would say, science fiction fantasy route. He does that with with some of his books. It just just takes you to the edge. It doesn't Mm. necessarily cross over, or it just crosses over a little bit. But it doesn't go flying off into into crazy stuff. But there is always an element in there that is, is not realistic that just creeps yeah. over the edge and, and but it gets you thinking i suppose slightly yes yes there's a, a but it's always subject to interpretation 
So it doesn't quite go into magic realism. This is because, again, it's in there's about three points of view characters there. And, and certainly you're very much within, although it's a, it's a close third person rather than the first person like you've adopted. Um, so it's close third. So you're very much in that person's head. So you don't know whether that's their interpretation. So it isn't quite, it can okay. easily stay yeah. this side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tim, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I've just finished uh, Trio by William Boyd, um, his, his latest book, and uh, which is a really interesting book, actually. And as its title suggests, it's three different characters and we have their three different points of view. And interestingly enough, uh, it is also set in about 1968. Um, it's on a film set in Brighton and it's a producer, uh, a writer, who's the wife of the director and the lead actor. And... Um, the three of them have their have lives that, that, that come together in bits. They all have lives outside their public lives, if you see what I mean. So they're all not quite what they seem to be to to the rest, everyone around them. They have rich interior lives, I suppose you could say. Um, and I think that William Boyd is a real is a is a cracking writer. Mm. He does he does a really he does he doesn't always hit the hit the absolute peak with every book, but uh, he's very good. Yeah, agreed. I could read anything of his, I think, yeah. But uh, So that that's one thing I've read. I caught up with a, a book that was been, that's been published more than a while ago now in paperback, The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Oh, yeah. Uh, by Christy Leftiri, which I thought was good. It's one of those books that's a real eye-opener about uh, the experiences of um, asylum seekers from Syria in the, in the UK um, and their journey to get to the UK. Having said all that, uh, and it's it's wonderful that it, it lets you know what what was going on. Um, for me, it doesn't necessarily work as a brilliant novel, but it's a great story. If you see what I mean, uh, so I enjoyed that. I've just started Ghosts by Dolly Alderton, um, the young writer. She she's a, a more of a journalist, I suppose you would say, but she wrote Everything I Know About Love, which is actually she has got. A, if we're talking about authorial voices, she's got a really distinctive voice. Uh, yes, she's a, a young writer who's, who's very successful, um, which obviously makes some older writers bristle a little bit. Um, <laughs> He's but, looking at me. But, you need to know. Uh, I think I think she has a real talent, um, uh, and yes, it's it's aimed at a younger readership necessarily, but but I think she's got something special about her. I agree. I mean, I do like her columns and so on, but it's just, you know what I'm like. And, and, and listeners, you know what I'm like about celebrity. Um, just, oh, I've decided to write a book. Um, it really sticks in the craw a bit. Anyway, so um, I'm going to turn now to Neil. And first of all, Neil, let's discuss hens. Hens. So do you want to tell people here why why we joined by hens? Well, um <laughs> Um, about what? Gosh, twelve years ago, you wanted to get rid of your hen. You well, that to. sounds awful. And um, <laughs> because there was a good reason why you had to get rid of them, I think we were um, moving into the centre of Chichester. I think that's a very good reason to get rid of your hens. Anyway, so you very kindly gave them to us, and we had um, young kids at the time, and a garden just about big enough to accommodate them. And your husband, very Richard, very kindly. Um, came and built a run for them and gave us, I think you gave us, actually gave us your, what do you call it, a coop or whatever. Uh, whatever. It was, it was and they a, were the most charming, the palace. Were rocks and they were really charming, charming hens, beautiful hens. And they kept themselves themselves, they didn't rip the garden to bits. Uh, and they were great, unfortunately, you know, some of them just died naturally and then a few were taken by the, Mr Fox. 
And then we got these other awful hens, which I thought would be really great. Called, they were called Sussex this and Sussex that, white Sussex. And they were a nightmare because they, um, they just opened the doors in the back door in the, in the summer and they were in the house. Well, what are you it's, reading? Um, it, not what I want to be reading necessarily because so much of what I have to read these days is related to the projects that I'm on. So at the moment I am ghosting a book. Mm. So I've been reading... You know, I mean by Dominic Sandbrook. Yes, he's written these great, yes, sweeping all through histories, brilliant, wonderful absolutely books, absolutely brilliant. So I've read the one in the fifties, um, uh, up to sixty-four. I've got, and then I read. Um, they're both in, talking about enormous tomes, like um, yeah, huge books, but uh, really just rattling through them. They're so well written, and so uh, and so I'm reading a lot of that at the moment. But the one, the last novel I read, because I'm giving myself the odd treat and, and letting myself read. Do you, do, you, do you ever come across an author called who was sort of just before the wars and just after either side of the war called Patrick Hamilton? And yes. he was absolutely huge. Well, huge. He was incredibly good. Hang, um, hang of the square. That, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well hang done, square, Tim. Wonderful, brilliant, mm. slightly unsettling mm. book. And, I, and, and it, I, so I bought on the back of that. Um, I think it's called the Gorse Trilogy. Um, they've all got their own names, the three books. And so I read the first one, I think it's called West Pier, actually, and it's set in Brighton, three young boys just left Brighton College. Um, really unsung author, actually, and mm. it's, it's um, really recommend Patrick Hamilton. Oh, it's one from my backlisted, perhaps. Um, so I read that, West Pier. But again, a really, it's one of those reads where you can't stop reading it, but it's a really, it's like watching a horror film in a way, you know, it's mm. slightly unsettling, but you can't. You want to look you away, think, oh, God, but you, so yeah. Horrible. Stop it, you know, stop right. doing this to that person, please. Right. Petersfield's Shine Radio. OK, I'm sitting here with Neil Edworthy, whose new book, Otto Eckhart's Ordeal, has just been out in paperback. Um, it's his first novel, but he's written all sorts of books in the past. He's done gardening books, bird watching, books on rugby, on football, um, even military history, a book on tanks, I think, Neil, as well, didn't you? Um, and a book on darts. So, so tell me, why did you decide to write this one? Well, good question. I always wanted to write a novel. Very hard to write a novel. It's a, like a com- almost um, a completely different challenge to writing non-fiction. Non-fiction, I would say... Uh, once you've mastered that craft, it's reasonably straightforward. It's just hard graft. You collect your information, you marshal your facts, and you structure the book as well as you can and write it as well as you can. Um, a novel, I think, is you know the greatest challenge for a writer, I would say, because you start with a blank page and you have to create um, a world out of nothing, a world that makes sense and it's coherent and it's, it's its own little moral universe. And the structuring of that and getting dialogue right and point of viewism, I, I would say, you know, short of writing a Shakespearean play, it's as hard a project as you can take on. And I always wanted to do it. I never knew whether I had it in me. I still don't know whether I've um, got it in me, but I gave it a crack. And the, this came about, and probably the only reason it, it, it's seen the light of day is because um, a guy came to me um, with an idea for a non-fiction book. And I said I wasn't interested in doing it because it was about you know, Knights Templar and Holy Grail and sort of stuff, sort of stuff which would ruin a author's reputation overnight. And I and it almost for a joke, I said, if you pay me X amount of money and I'll uh, and let me turn it into a novel um, or an element of it into a novel, then then I'd love to take it on. And it was actually the moral pressure of a contract and a deadline, which which made me do it. And I I I, I honestly don't think I, I I I probably would have given it up. 
and slipped back to the easier life of non-fiction had I not been obliged to, you know, you know morally, contractually, legally obliged to, to do it. And I'm very pleased that I was obliged to do it because I absolutely love doing it again. I found it incredibly hard fiction. I yeah. found it um, just a challenge of an entirely different magnitude and order to writing non-fiction. Creating this world out of nothing. Normally, I know what the story is before I... In non-fiction, you know what the story is. Um, you know, before you've started, how it ends, how it's going to pan out. With you know, with a novel, I was warned. You know, you're careful, your characters will take over. Well, it's, and, it's, it's um, interesting to, you know, that you say that, Neil, about about having to write a book about the the, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail type. Yes, because yes. of course that's precisely what Otto has to do, or yes. does at the end of the book. Yes, and he doesn't take it very seriously. He thinks it's a bit of a bit of a, a laugh, and of course it gets te- picked up by by yes. uh, by the the. By Himmler and the, by and the powers that be, yes. um, and suddenly he has this surprising yes. hit on his hands, um, and he's he obviously is a bit of a fraud himself. Um, yes. and, I, and I love this book because it, it's got plenty of it's very tongue in cheek and lots of uh, lots of sort of sly humour in it. I think how come, how did you find your 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 style, your tone of voice? Well, it's, it's a very very good question. I think it is the you know the question actually because. I have written one other novel, and it's it's, un, it's sitting unpublished. And I'm working. I was working on the second draft, in amongst doing other sort of non-fiction projects, and I, and and I'd hoped to have finished it long ago by now. But then this project turned up, so I left it. But that book is a thriller set in um, you know the Middle East and the, the ISIS days, and I I, I slightly struggled to um, you know because I'm not an action man. I'm not a a butch military sort of character, and I and I did struggle to, um, you know, to give it some resonance, and it's particularly the main character. Whereas this book, I did, and I thought, gosh, am I ever going to find my voice as a novelist? But with this, I felt um, because it, as you say, it's slightly tongue in cheek. Um, he, the main character, Otto Eckhart, is a slightly self-deprecating character who can't take himself too seriously is closer to me as a character than a butch military sort of SAS guy. And so I um and it was it was a process of discovery actually and I slowly I grew in confidence as I wrote it and Otto Eckhart, I have to say, gave me that confidence to, to write a little bit more boldly. I did find a little bit of a voice, I think, at, um through him. It's a bit of a cheat doing first person in a way, because just hiding behind that voice uh, but I took his voice I don't know whether it's mine but I definitely felt comfortable in that um, you know he's not he's, he's not an impressive character is he at the beginning but I mean he I like to think like, he, grows, he, grows. he grows he grows I like yeah. to think one day I'll grow too but, um, <laughs> but it's a good question about the voice I think the voice actually is everything I do fiction. think it's the most difficult thing to do f- um, uh, as a novelist is to make a consistent clear voice yep. that is that is clearly you uh, yes. uh, and it's doesn't borrow too much yep. on other people and, and take other other themes and but just is yep. is because then the then the reader feels comfortable they know where they are absolutely so. I, I i completely agree with that and um in fact my wife who's my greatest critic um, um said that what she enjoyed about this book is that she knew exactly where she was on page one um she heard the voice. I think there's a line in the, the in the first page where he says something like, um, oh "God, what a naive dolt I was." Um, and suddenly she thought, "Okay, I like this guy. You know, he's admitting to his failings and his, um, you know, his weaknesses and his shortcomings." And she could empathise and sympathise, whatever the word is. Uh, and so she invested in the character straight away. 
Whereas, you know, the, the, uh, um, there are other characters, aren't there, where it takes they're harder to get to know. I, I think you'd get to know him, you'd know who he, Otto Eckhart is pretty yes. early I on. I think that's a, a good point about the first-person narrative. If, if, it's, if, you're, if you're hearing it from them, they have to be consistent, yeah. obviously. If, you're, if exactly. you're hearing it from an outside or from different people talking about this character, yes. then it can be, you can get different voices. But, uh, so, yes. And um, you've got the narrator's voice and the author's voice and then the character's voices, and it's all in it. It takes a long time to, yes. to get into it. You're absolutely right. But the first person, it's not, it's not a cheat, I should call it a cheat, but what it is, is it's more direct and immediate, isn't it, for a reader. Yeah. They know exactly yeah. who they're listening to. And, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. OK, Neil, so, so why did you start writing in the first place? Well... Uh, very good question and a mean question because um, just a process of elimination um, as Tim might know of me from our young life, utterly unsuited to most types of, of work um, not a great sort of you know team collegiate office kind of worker uh, I, I think I would have got you know too wound up in any I did try and be a barrister I did do a one year law degree after university I did go to bar school I don't know. I, I, I think it's. Um, I'm a. Um, not, I call myself very grandly a lone wolf, but I, I'm just not um, a guy who likes putting on a suit and getting on a train. I'm not. Um, I'm not very good at other things, to be honest. And I like being my own boss. Um, it's funny because when you're younger, I um, it seemed like a great thing to be a writer because I had no one to, you know, I don't have to pay for anyone else apart from my own beer money and and whatever. But I mean, it, now I have to say, I. Um, I don't encourage many people to be writers unless they have another job or an independent income because it's incredibly hard to, um, you know, to, to make money um, as a writer these days, as everybody probably knows. Mm-hmm. Anything related to books is, is, is hard work. I suppose I could have been something else, um, but, I mean, nothing really jumped out at me. And I did have a crack at being a criminal barrister. I didn't, couldn't really see myself in a horsehair wig. Um, I think it's partly because I just can't take myself that I think it, I think seriously. It would, I think it would suit you, know. you actually, Neil. But, what, being um, a well, well, the wig, I'm thinking. The lunches would probably yeah. suit me. But the, um, but. So, of all these, of all these subject areas—gardening, bird yes. watching, rugby, football, um, military history—what's what's the what's the non-fiction area that? Well, no, which what's the area that you've enjoyed most? Um, definitely the history. The histories. Um, quite like my military stuff, possibly because my father's in the military, and I've always been interested in all that um to be really honest uh, um you know it's bread on table and um you have an agent and your agent says so and so would like a book on this for instance gardening and birds i mean absolutely nothing about and what they wanted as an author with completely fresh eyes to tackle it so you know with that innocence you know so for instance a lot of these books are they're not my you know, they weren't my... They're not your passions. I, they're not my passions. But that said, I've become, you know, um, a really keen gardener. And, 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 and I really now, I mean, for 10 years, I absolutely love birds. And, I, and so I'm very grateful to, you know, paid a modest amount of money to them. They did quite well. Um, so none of these books... Um, I'm very few, I mean, I've done a few under my own name, but most of the books I've written have been ghost-written autobiographies for for the... Uh, um, you know, for, for, for sort of well-known public figures, and that you know again is not a choice. It's just you know it's it's a job. Yeah. Um, so virtually nothing really until um, this novel. I, I, I've, I've you know there's very few. I've, um, the darts book right at the beginning, twenty-five years ago, 
um, was my idea. Um, cause I, um, and it's not, a, it's not a mocking book. It's a book about a very eccentric slice of English life. And I went on a bit of a you know, travel with this young Essex road digger trying to make the big time. And, and it's probably just an excuse to drink beer for a, for a year. But I was working at Reuters at the time. And so I did it in between. Uh, but so, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, actually, because, I mean, when I look at those books I've written, none of them were really my, um, you know, my great passion. You're right. Um, it's literally just a job, you know, like we all have two jobs. Um, so I, I think I feel really chuffed with this novel because it was all mine. And I did, you know, I it's really what it. you wanted to do. Which it's is, really what I wanted fantastic. to do, yeah. And right. I've always wanted to have a go. I, to be honest, I don't think I would have been anywhere near good enough 10, 15 years ago, and I wasn't, you know, I got better as I, you know, uh, you know as I researched and learnt about fiction, you know, before I said it. Um, so, yes, I, I, for me, that was a, um, a huge education, um, and that was really thrilling to be able to learn the craft of fiction. You, I don't think people can just sit down and write no. fiction. I really don't believe they Some can Some people do think that. they can, but, uh, but yeah. a, lot of people, a lot of people can't. So uh, that's, it's Otto Eckhart's ordeal, uh, it's out now, and um, it's a jolly good read. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Okay, some ideas for books for Christmas. I've just just thought of two or three paperbacks that have been out for a while, novels, uh, which I think would would make good good presents for different sorts of people. Um, the first one is My Sister, the Serial Killer, by <laughs> Oyinkan Braithwaite. Um, this has won all sorts of prizes. It's a sort of it's very much tongue in cheek. We talk, we'll talk. We talked about tongue in cheek before, but uh, along if you think of, if you think of the TV equivalent, it might be Killing Eve. It's that sort of thing. It's it's not taking itself too seriously, but it's basically it's set in Nigeria. It's a Nigerian writer, uh, and it's it's sort of about the beguiling danger of beauty. Um, the sister is very beautiful, but tends to kill off her uh, boyfriends, and the other the other the, the sister, the narrator of the, of the book, has to sort things out. Um, but it's about families. It's about sisters. Uh, Perfect and it's about, for Christmas and about Nigeria as well. But it, it's it's a it's a really really it's a short but but witty and clever book. That's the first one. The second one is the Dutch House by Anne Patchett, which is also about families, but particularly about a brother sister relationship. And um, set in America, a contemporary story and the difficulties of fa- families and, and step families in particular. Again, Christmas Christmas theme, possibly. And lastly, Grandmothers by Sally Vickers. So it's very family-focused, my, little, love my, Sally my series of books this time. It's about three grandmothers, um, all quite different. It's not, it's not, it's not cosy and, and uh, uh, that sort of grandmothers. It's, it's the real life of looking after grandchildren and uh, doing all sorts of things. But contemporary story. And um, it's nicely handled by Sally Vickers. I think she's a she's a good writer, uh, and we feel quite safe in her hands. No, I read her ages ago, and it's one of those. There are sometimes authors, aren't there, where you where you sort of like Robertson Davis. I went completely mad on Robertson Davis and read all of them, and now I can't actually remember a single one. And it's the same for me with Sally Vickers and even Penelope Lively. I just totally sort of got into. Mm. Um, and now I can't, so I wouldn't be able to say to people. That's why when I do the backlisted, I actually research it. So I'll choose a book that I can honestly say I haven't forgotten. Um, and then I look up my favourite bits. And it's interesting how I can go almost to the page of the bit that I've remembered. 
So um, I think for Christmas, I'd really like to go right back because Christmas is essentially Victorian. Our Christmas, our notion of family Christmas that we're talking about is really Prince Albert's, isn't it? Um, So I thought I'd go right back to... um, I studied Anglo-Saxon and Victorian in my English degree. Um, and I'd like to go back and reread a lot of my Victorian authors, but particularly some of the ones that I think now that I'm older, I would view completely differently, like Edmund Goss, um, somebody like that that has just gone completely. And I know you listeners probably are thinking, who? Because he just isn't sung about like Dickens or Trollope or Thackeray or, you know, any of those. Mm. And... Uh, Why? Yeah, why? Well, indeed, why? Um, This is the producer is asking why. (laughs) He always asks me awkward questions. Thank you, John. Um, Why? Because there's so much humour, I'm told, in Fathers and Sons. Um, And I missed that completely as an undergraduate. I think I thought it was just awful. So I really want to go back and, and read it because people I rate very much like Tim you're going to have to help me again Essex Serpent Sarah Perry yes it's Sarah Perry's absolutely okay. favourite book does sound like a bit of work to me Susie this <laughs> I, I, doesn't sound like you're going to have a fun Christmas that's for sure well none of us may and if we're in lockdown I probably need some that's the other thing I need a couple of three decker novels and I've read Mantell and things so where am I going to go for my heft um, well, talk, when you're talking about Robertson Davis a moment ago, it made me think of Anthony Burgess and some of his his uh, great big like earthly powers or something, which uh, are really hefty and um, carry some weight. And I read them years ago, and I don't think I could remember them either. I may, perhaps I need to go back and read them myself. There but you I go. Would, I would, uh, but I, I'm not sure I'd go back as 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 far as um, as far as the not the last century, the century before for my <laughs> for my Christmas reading. But maybe that's well failing in me. Maybe it is. Right, so I'm going to move very swiftly on um, to a very thin tome for my backlisted book, um, which is absolutely one of my favourites. So I really, at the moment, I don't know if you feel the same, but I got quite depressed at the thought of going into lockdown again. And I thought I was going to pick a PG Woodhouse because he's totally my go-to, particularly Full Moon or or any of the Blandings. And my particular favourite, you could have Jeeves, but I love him. But instead of that, I've gone for one which I hope you may not know, which is Michael Frayne Towards the End of the Morning. Um, Neil is nodding, so... Well, Michael Frame gets mine. Well, totally the vote. I haven't read that one. I've read Michael Frame before, but not, not that particular this one. This is my third. I've scored a hat-trick of books that Tim doesn't actually know, which is... Wow, go me! Anyway, so, towards the end of the morning, the morning, the reason why I've chosen this is also set in Fleet Street, as those of us old enough to remember would totally remember when they were basically sots um, who would have long liquid lunches. With a, with a tea. That's, I, I did try to enunciate the D quite clearly then in sot. Um, so what is it about? Um, Michael Frayn's classic is set in the crossword and nature notes department of an obscure national newspaper during the declining years of Fleet Street, where John Dyson dreams wistfully of fame and the gentlemanly life until one day his great chance of glory at last arrives. It sounds like you in Reuters, Neil. Um, well, 
But I'm just going to read you one little section because I think those of us who are old enough can completely relate to this and you don't need any introduction except to say that Dyson is driving Bob home in the old standard vanguard through the dank, dead streets of the inner suburbs, yellow under the sodium lights. So that's all I'll say. There were few people about, but many cars. As soon as they got within range of Dyson, everyone seemed to drive badly. They overtook him when he wasn't expecting it. They pulled up at the side of the road and trapped him behind them. They got in front of him at traffic lights and then decided to turn right. Oh, for God's sake, snarled Dyson, snatching at the wheel, thumping the accelerator up and down uncertainly. He sat forward tensely in his seat, as if he found it difficult to see the road, and frequently wiped at the windscreen with his handkerchief. At one point, something heavy fell off or out of the dashboard onto Bob's foot and rolled away beneath the seat with a metallic ring. Dyson peered down into the darkness after it, driving the car steadily out across the white line in the middle of the road. Don't worry about that, Bob, he said. That's always coming off. Incidentally, Bob, those brown patches on the wings aren't rust, you know. Which brown patches, John? I thought I saw you looking at them before we started. They look like rust. It fooled me at first. But it's rather interesting. It's brown undercoat. It's quite remarkable when you come to think about it. The car's 15 years old. It stands out in all weathers. And the undercoat's still intact. Remarkable. Of course, it's not just the paintwork. Everything was built to a slightly higher specification then. They hadn't learned to cut quite so many corners. It's worth remembering, Bob, if you ever buy a car. Dyson swung left into a main road, looking over his shoulder to watch out for traffic from the right, and drove over the edge of the curb. The thump of the back wheel coming into the gutter brought Bob's window down. Jam it with that wedge of paper, said Dyson. I suppose some damn fool left a brick lying in the gutter. In the middle of a yellow common, the engine died, and the car rolled jerkily to a halt. That's funny, said Dyson. He pressed the starter. He pressed it again. He went on pressing it until the starter engine ground to a halt. Then they sat in silence for some moments. George God strikes again, said Bob. In a sudden access of enraged energy, Dyson jumped out of the car, slammed the door violently behind him and wrenched the bonnet open. Bob followed him apprehensively. Dyson was glaring into the hot, oily darkness of the engine as if he were about to smash it to pieces with his bare hands. Perhaps it was that bump we went over, said Bob, hesitantly. Dyson straightened up and transferred his glare to Bob. Do you know anything at all about cars? He asked curtly. No, John. Then be a good fellow, will you, and try not to make imbecile remarks. Dyson bent over the engine again. If you want to know, he said, it's probably the points or something to do with the plugs. He put his hand into the engine, touched something hot and sprang back a pace. Christ, he is sucking his knuckles. John, said Bob, may I ask a very naive question? Are you sure it hasn't just run out of petrol? (laughs) Which, of course, it has. Very good. Very good. That's a lovely piece. I love it. Thank you. So, Tim, as we face lockdown, um, is the shop ready? How are you facing this second belt? Well, I think we're a bit more prepared this time. We know what to expect and... um, what we're going to be doing is basically do 
a lot of mail mailing out, delivering books, um, click and collect. So you can you can say what you want either on the phone or on the website, and and then come and pick it up. Um, so I think we'll be. I hope we'll be quite busy, and I hope I'll be whizzing around on my on my bicycle, dropping books off around around Peterfield and the villages, and um, and getting fit. <laughs> Fitter, I have to say. I think that's brilliant. And bookshops have been the huge success, haven't they, through lockdown? Yes. Well, I think that it, it, it's going into another world is something that we, where a lot of us need to do when this when this world seems quite quite tricky at the moment. To escape into a fantastic novel is just what we need. All I have to say now before we wrap up is that in December we'll be joined by Kate Moss talking about her book, The Winter Ghosts. And of course, because it's lockdown, we'll be doing it remotely over IPDTL. Whatever that is. <laughs> You've been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. Hello, this is Hugh Bonneville. And finally, you and I have our own local radio station right here in Petersfield. It's our station, made by the people of Petersfield, and that means we don't just have to listen, we can get involved too. We can influence what Petersfield Shine Radio does, we can help it cover our interests, and we can tell it off in public if it gets something wrong. You make it shine. So join me and support the volunteers by spreading the wonderful news that Petersfield Shine Radio is here.